Good day and welcome to Tabletop Hot Takes. In this show, we examine all aspects of tabletop role-playing games through our particular and peculiar lenses, thoughts, feelings, and of course, hot takes. My name is Professor Funky, and I am joined, as always, by... Aria. Howdy, howdy. Together, we've been playing RPGs for over 30 years, have a lot of heavily informed opinions based on that. With all that behind us, let's get straight into this week's topic, Ryutama, the natural RPG. This is one of my favorites, actually. I had stumbled upon Ryutama after being introduced to roleplay games in general, but it was early in my journey in the world of TTRPGs, and it was a really welcome step in that journey because of the reasons why we'll discuss later. I gotta say, that is fascinating to me because this is such a unique thing. For this to inform your early opinions of tabletop roleplaying games is, is amazing to me. I don't want to get into this right away, but there's a lot of very beginner-focused aspects of this game, and it does really help set the stage for a lot of my future developments. 100%. Like, it's really fascinating. And probably one of the smarter-designed games that I could see. I could absolutely see running this game with very experienced people and with very inexperienced people and having a good time on both ends. Yeah, I definitely think so, too. There's there's a lot of, don't know what you would call them, options, design decisions, frameworks. There's a lot of different things that this brings to the table. So where do we start? So, Arya, you obviously brought up this topic. Tell us a little bit about what Ryutama is in a general sense, and then let's drill down into some of the unique things that it does after that. Sounds good. Well, this is a standard-ish fantasy-styled RPG in that it has things that you're expecting, like character classes, die rolling, abilities that you can use in combat. There will be traveling and other things. You can hop into a world, interact with that. Cool. Yeah. So what is so unique about Ryutama? Because I think we've said that a couple times, but this is a really fascinating system. I read through the book, kind of skimmed. Mostly I'm going off of their website, which has a really good breakdown of a lot of the basics of it without getting into the specifics of design. But what makes this so unique? What's some of the things that really set it apart? So first of all, it has a very heavy focus on the traveling aspect. And a lot of times, such as in Dungeons and Dragons, Pathfinder, all of these other games, a lot of times travel is hand-waved. You are going from one event to another. You're going from one set piece to another. And this yeah, is it's like, like a noir film where like the point is the cool stuff that's happening, not the stuff in between. Of course, yeah. And Lord of the Rings, you don't see them walking in real time for six hours. And you don't do that in this game either. But it's still focusing on that journey, focusing on supplies you would need, how the weather would affect you, other things that really help ground the world and ground the realism just by focusing on travel. And specifically, it gives you more experience points. It gives you more incentivized things for traveling than for almost anything else, as far as I can tell. Right. It's a system based entirely on wanderlust, on going out into the world and exploring and seeing what you can see. And the mechanical implications of that are we've made travel both one of the biggest obstacles you will face and one of the core ways you can advance your character. You're seeing sights, you're gaining experience. It's truly not the destination. It is the journey. 
Actually, this is a really great sentence they've got on the website. Ryutama is not a setting of fearless warriors and powerful wizards. It's about a baker, a farmer, a town doctor, and a town crier who meet up and travel to new or faraway places because they have an intense wanderlust. And that really kind of lays it out for you. Like, hey, you're going to play some basic-ass would-be NPCs in another fantasy game, but those NPCs decide to go on an adventure. Yeah, that's the pitch. God, I love that. It's such a cool, fun idea. And again, like, this is a game I could run with kids. This is a game I could run with people new to tabletop role-playing games. This is also a game I could absolutely run with my Friday night group as a fun little, like, hey, let's try something totally different. I love that you brought up kids and new players, because that's actually really important. What this game does is something I haven't seen a lot of games do. And that is it leads with terms and rules and things like that in a way that you don't normally see with RPGs. They have a tendency to assume you know what a die is, kind of have a tendency to assume what a nomenclature are from this, how to read a character sheet, things like that. I am actually going to jump in on that for a moment, because that's really intriguing to me that you think that, because in the 90s, that was so untrue, it was not even funny. In the 90s, and really early 2000s even, I can remember reading base-level core rulebooks that had things like, what's a role-playing game? What are these crazy dice we're talking about? And I can explicitly remember, because this is before the time when we really paid for artists as much, where they would have a description of what a d20 looked like. But of course, you couldn't just call it an icosodecahedron because nobody knows what the fuck that is. And there was this really fascinating period there. And I think this is actually a thing that happens more and less as the tabletop role-playing game renaissance has happened. But early 2000s was also a period where we had a lot of this, like, let's define the base level of what we're even talking about here. But yes, this game absolutely does that. And it does it in a really smart way because it does it in language that I think I could see a 10-year-old reading. I guess that is the counterpoint. In D&D, specifically the 5th edition rulebook, it talks yeah. about character creation. It leads with that. It doesn't sit you down and go, this is what these do. It's intertwined in such a way that it goes from game dice to advantage and disadvantage. All of a sudden, we're talking rules. And yeah, it's entirely possible. I'm having a bit of a selective memory issue right now. In the earlier RPGs were just as descriptive. This one certainly does it in a very accessible way. This is something I would possibly break out to the rest of my normal family if I could really wrangle them into doing something. Yeah, I could give this to a 10-year-old, and they might actually enjoy reading it. It's written in very plain language, but very interesting language. On the website, there was one that I saw earlier. The majority of XP is given for difficult travels, not for killing monsters. Though combat is certainly a part of the game, and even total party kills, in quotes, are a potential result against strong enemies. You get far more XP for climbing a mountain in a snowstorm than for fighting a demon. I could condense that sentence by 40 to 60%, literally, but they decided to write it out a little bit more because it makes it more evocative and it makes it more interesting to read. So that's something that I very much enjoy about this system is that it is not catering to a specific hardcore audience. It is really a game that we want as many people as possible to enjoy. Everyone means children and people that would not normally play RPGs. 
maybe the sort of gamer that would be intimidated by large math equations or spell descriptions that go on for a page. I'm glad you brought that up. I don't think there was more than a couple spells that were more than two sentences. Yeah, the entire magic section is probably 10 or 12 pages. Yeah, and that includes, I mean, maybe not dozens of spells, but definitely tens of spells. One of the spells is just detect people who are in love. That is so open-ended and beautiful and perfect for a experienced player to be able to use how they want or an inexperienced player to work it out because it writes itself to be reinterpreted. Yes. And speaking of magic, there is a game design, not necessarily requirement, but a suggestion. Your characters are going to have some unusual skills. There's a cantrip to generate ice cubes. You want to make your characters feel really awesome? Give them opportunities to use those spells in really unexpected ways. Yes, this is what I am about. And them for doing so. All right, so I think that gets the basics of some of the weird stuff, but there's one last thing we really should touch in on, and that's the Ryujin, their name for Game Master. What makes this so unique? Yeah, as mentioned in our last episode, if you haven't listened to that, go listen to it. Please, please. God, please. Please. <laughs> so this is explicitly a DM NPC. And that's a term that might have some baggage with it, but if you're coming from other systems. But in this particular context, a DM NPC is actually here to help the story influence it in a in-character way so that you can get the hand of God moments with it being mechanically described. I have the mechanical agency. I have the system's permission to put my thumb on the scale a little bit in these new and interesting ways. And I think the big thing with this and what made me realize what this game was all about was that all of the Ryujin, the DM non-player character, is all of their powers only help the players. They never hinder them. And there are some powers that are mostly invoked at the very beginning of it to act more as plot hooks and opportunities for plot hooks rather than anything else. It even encourages you to fast forward through parts if, oh, people have to go, or you can fast forward through the narrative if stuff is starting to drag. It's one of those Game Master powers. This is something that us as Game Masters know second nature. If stuff is starting to drag, you either introduce a complication, make it exciting somehow, you keep people engaged. But very rarely is it spelled out with such mechanical clarity the next interesting thing how the game breaks down the four type type in big old air quotes of stories that ryutama can tell and elaborates on them a little bit not a lot but a little bit it actually talks about the four types of ryujin that's the green dragons blue dragons red dragons and black dragons and that is simultaneously the type of story that you are telling and the type of powers that the dm has to help the story carry on The default, as they put it, is the green dragon. And the green dragon has the ability to turn a failure into a success. Boom, there you go. They can do that once per session at the beginning of the game. And as the game goes on, they can do it more often. Or they can make a character feel well-rested. It encourages the game master to not think only of ways to hinder the players and their characters in their journey, but also to enhance it and to not just let a bummer of a session go by where everything goes wrong and all the roles are bad and everything sucks. 
yeah, important to have that option. This is intended to be overall a feel-good game. You can explore darker themes, of course, but on the whole, it's really meant to invoke these feelings of pastoral traveling, of you're on an adventure, but it's far more of the Miyazaki grounded in adventure rather than, I'm going to go slay a dragon. Right, you're not off to slay the dragon, you're off to find a new life, or to go visit someone's family, or to maybe head off to adventure and participate in a war, maybe to escape a doomed country as tragedy befalls it. But in each of those, and I think this was really the key when it talks about these types of games, it talks about them in the way of how can they still be feel good? How can they still be, uh, how can I walk away from the feeling fuzzy, not worn down? So the example that really hooked me and sold me on this game, I believe it was from their website. Somebody had asked the creator of the game, hey, how do you run a feel-good tragedy? They're like, oh, I've actually done that before. What was happening was the world was ending. Nobody could stop it. Gods couldn't. The dragons couldn't. Magic couldn't. The world was just going to end. So in a traditional D&D campaign, the entire focus would be on how do we stop this tragedy from happening? How do we save the world? But in this setting, the characters are going on one last trip before the end of the world. That was haunting to me. Because can you imagine the roleplay that comes out of that? The catharsis you can get from that, even though you know the conclusion is going. It's a doomed hero story. That's actually a really classic trope. And it's something that we really like watching, actually. The idea of like at the beginning of the episode or at the beginning of the season, you see the heroes die. And then go back in time and watch how it happens. And maybe get a fake out. It's a really classic story. Look at, oh my god, I can't believe I'm about to pull this out. Oedipus Rex. (laughs) Like, literally, Uh the beginning of Oedipus, we hear how he sleeps with his mom and then kills herself. But then we watch it happen. We know how it's going to end, but I want to watch the story unfold. Exactly. There's a sense of catharsis that you get even knowing how things will work. Like, even knowing that the ending is already written, there is, once again, a lot to be gathered from the journey to that point and not just that ending destination. God, yes. The more I read through this book, the more I read through their website, the more I read through the writings of the creator, it just feels so unique. I don't know anything else that does this. Something I really want to say that's beginner-friendly, but it's not just beginner-friendly. It talks about party roles, and that's not just, I'm going to be the healer, I'm going to be the tank. It's yeah. stuff like quartermaster, mm-hmm. like mapper. Yeah, those goals are incredibly immersive for role-playing, because we're in a caravan. We need these things. We have jobs as well as classes and things that we can do to interact. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine and would love being in a group where one person's like, oh, I'm going to write about what happens each session. Oh, I'll keep track of all the stuff that we have. Oh, I'll draw a map of the area as we find it. Like, I 100% see those people in the groups that I have right now. And I can 1000% see them actually doing it. That, I find, is something that is unique. Those are usually things that can happen, but depending on your group, that might not be their speed. They might just be like, all right, I'm going to roll a d10. Whoever it lands on tells me what happens last time instead of, oh, no, I'm keeping an in-character journal. Way to call me out like that. (laughs) (laughs) 
Really quick before we head into some other stuff, the art in this book, I've been trying to figure out what it feels like for weeks now, and I think I finally got it. It is Final Fantasy Tactics through the lens of Miyazaki. I was about to say Final Fantasy Tactics. Now Miyazaki decides to do the Final Fantasy Tactics characters. And that is just so spectacularly strange, but immediately identifiable. I looked at this book and went, I know this art and I don't know why. Oh, I just read from the website that the original author actually works at a tabletop gaming cafe in Tokyo. Yeah, I had read that as well. It makes a lot of sense, actually. Uh, yeah, yeah. This definitely feels like a synthesis of standard role-playing games, if that makes sense, but taken through a different lens, taken through a different set of circumstances. To me, it feels like they looked at what was out there and was like, I am not telling the stories I want to be telling with this system. So there's a couple more topics I want to touch on those. I want to get into the character sheet and GM character sheet and just some little things about it, because I think this is a really smart character sheet. It breaks things down on the sheet. Every day when you're going traveling, obviously, you do three specific checks, and that's movement, direction, and camp. So that's how well do you move? Do you move in the right direction that you meant to? And do you make camp well? And it actually lays that out on the sheet. It just says traveling rules, movement check, strength plus dex, direction check, int plus int, camp check, dex plus int. Boom. There you go. It's right there in front of you, which is so cool. And then the status effects and the condition effects and the condition check, all of that, all written on the sheet. If you're tired, it just tells you your spirit die size goes down. Done. There you go. Nice and easy just to tell you exactly what this is. Similarly, it lays out area for your skills, your class, your name, like all the normal things. But it also gives you just a really easy spot for your image, color, and appearance, your hometown and reason for travel, and notes. And on the example character sheet, it gives a really good example of each of these. It gives you expectations of the game, where the image, color, and appearance of Haruka, the farmer. Her image color is yellow. She has chestnut color, semi-long hair. And then her hometown reason for travel, she's from Elm Tay, famous for windmills and wheat. She has a letter from her late father that she's trying to give to her brother Fiore, who left the town three years ago. Boom. It immediately sets up what this game is really about. And then some notes. She's in charge of the travel diary. Her nickname is Hina the Flowerbird. She loves singing. And her white dog, Casta, is her best friend. She's a crybaby when it comes to dark places. That is not anything I would ever say about a character in Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> or if you even have the spot for it, it's on the second page with your overflow spells, with your miscellaneous items, with all the trinkets and stuff that you find, but not anything that's actually important. And by putting those aspects of the character front and center, this is highlighting we're people here and this is what's important. God, yes. It's one of the keys of game design, in my opinion, which is incentivize and explain to your players what's important about this game. Why does it matter? Why do we care? <laughs> 
And that's just so key. It makes your players go, oh, this is what I want to do. This is what the game's about. And then over to the GM character sheet. So this is the reusion for this adventure. Similarly, still has space for their name, but also what shape that their dragon takes when they're with the party. Obviously has room for their abilities and the type of things that they can do to help the group. But then it has a whole section of history of tales. And that is the name of the session that you ran, the date that it was run on, and who went on it. And the scenario names that they use here is First Meeting with Trouble and Around the Autumn Time of Fluttering Leaves. And it's just so evocative. And if you are new to Game Mastery, there is usually a Game Master section in books. Those are very common. Those can sometimes have additional plot or rules, explanations, or something like that. For D&D 5th edition, there's an entire GM guide that came out as a second product. Yeah, whole book. To be fair, that started way back with 2nd edition. At this point, it's more of just a legacy thing. And even in some games, like we look at Deadlands, Deadlands produced in one book, but the back half of the book was the Marshall's Guide. And it actually says on the front page of the Marshall's Guide, if you are not a Marshall, meaning a game master, do not read this. If you read it, you will be sad because <laughs> it's going to ruin things. That game's all about mysteries and weird stuff, and you can't be weirded out by the weird stuff if you already know about it. Yeah, you can't unring that bell. Something that really helps with this is that in Ryotama, it specifically has sections on creating scenarios. Say you're playing a reagent. This tells you and has you think about before the session what we want the name, the scenery, features, what's the most difficult encounter. It is preceding these things in your head. And it also gives you the literal act structure of the scenario in a separate standalone sheet, literally a scenario cultivation sheet. I actually don't think I'd seen that one. I was about to talk about the town creation sheet. But if you've got that, that's way more intriguing. Okay, yeah. yeah. Scenario type, travel, gathering, or fight, season, session time, about this long or this many hours, and then events. Oh, and it literally breaks down a three-act structure. Ah, oh, God, yes, love it. Yes. Oh. If you are a DM, you have probably got at least some passing familiarity with these structures and stories and other things. Otherwise, it's unlikely that you would choose to be a DM on your first go if yeah. you didn't have the seeds of writership, authorship yes. in your mind. I like I writership, it. actually. It feels a little bit less pretentious somehow. It's a good phrase. I like it, too. My point being, though, there's not a lot of formal training on how to do a engaging scenario. And this has offloaded some of that legwork, letting you know what's going on and what works for them. And of course, if you're more experienced, you can throw all this out the window. But not everyone's going to read Save the Cat. This is just breaking that down into a really short, easy way. And it really does help with those newer players. And that's why I'm saying this is super beginner-friendly, because it includes these background things that are sometimes taken for granted. Yeah, it breaks down the three-act structure, the Save the Cat, the whatever you want to call it, into easily digestible chunk, 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 and boom, you got a session. So I think there's one last thing I want to talk about with the system. The four types of stories that it tells and just get into them. Like, what sort of things can we do with this game? We've touched on how it does it. We've touched on why it does it. We've touched on how fabulous it is. So now let's give some examples of those types of stories, how we could see it done, and the sorts of tales that we would want to tell with these various dragons. 
Let's start with the default. The Green Dragon focuses on classical adventure, journeys, travel, and new experiences. I'm really drawn to that last one personally. So this is definitely evocative of a different, more pastoral time period. While you can definitely set them as cities, when I would personally run this, I would probably stay away from the more populated areas or birthplaces because when you're working on a farm or doing manual labor or surviving, then you have an element of repetition to your day-to-day tasks. You have an element of, I am growing up here, and I might never go to New York. It would be cool to do sometime, but I'm content with where I am. And not only never going to go to New York, but every autumn, I'm going to harvest, and every winter, I'm going to try and survive, and every spring, I'm going to plant things, and every summer, I'm going to watch it grow. Like, not even just day to day, but month to month, year to year, decade to decade, just the same things in and out day and day. You've got animals to take care of. You've got stuff to can and do all these things. It's very easy for stuff to become broke, which is why having a journey, having an adventure, I'm just coming back off a trip and I need more micro adventures in my life. This is, this is incredibly timely. <laughs> this is cathartic. Yes. Podcast meets real world. And I'm immediately seeing a story form of the four small town kids that decide to head out into the big world because they know the future that's coming for them of meeting someone and settling down and having children and having a farm or a bakery or whatever in town in the one town that they grew up on in New Haven. And they will never leave except maybe to go sell extra goods like once a year. But mostly their kids are going to do that. And they say, we're going off on an adventure. So these kids then wander off into the Great Blue Yonder and along the way are curated by this dragon, who of course they don't know is a dragon, is secretly just their dog. And they see wondrous things. They see floating islands. They see, yep, I'm going to straight pull it out, a castle in the sky. We're just going full Miyazaki here. (laughs) And And they find the truth of the world and what really made the continent the way that it is, or something like that, some big mystery. But they can only find that by going on this journey and coming back forever changed, but in a positive way of being adults now, of this coming-of-age story, like Stand By Me by Stephen King meets Castle in the Sky by Hayao Miyazaki, because apparently we're just pulling Miyazaki all all day on this. Yeah, I was going to say Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, so I was leaning a little bit more, okay, okay, I see where I mean, you're going. The stakes yeah. are much, much, much higher. lower. But... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Metal Alchemist just feels a little bit more, I don't know the word that I'm looking for, furor-ish than I would maybe go for you, Ryutama. <laughs> yeah, what I meant by that is we've got characters that are from a rural area that are forced into a fantastic situation. They're experiencing cities that they haven't been to and stuff, but ultimately they return home. Hero's journey. Mm -hmm. You return back after crossing the threshold. What this does is let you do a little micro version that you're crossing a threshold. You're not crossing a big heroic threshold, but instead you're just opening yourself up to something you haven't seen before. And that's scary for a lot of people in real life. Yeah, no comment. Okay, so the second one, the Blue Dragon, their stories focus on friendship, 
love, family, and particularly feel-good human dramas. This one's more interesting to me. I actually have a little bit more trouble with it. It almost feels even more pastoral. Like, I don't know how to incorporate combat and things like that into this sort of story. Do you have any idea where to go with, like, a blue dragon story? Well, I wouldn't necessarily have it combat focus. I could see you running a mystery, like, you've got a mysterious suitor. Which one of these people in town could it be? Okay. This is definitely aimed towards, I guess you would call it light novel stories. Yeah, because travel is still a big part of you, Tama. Like, Anne, her husband-to-be lives off in this town over there. Well, we need to get her there for her wedding. Oh, God, I can't believe I'm about to say this. It's like a big bachelorette party. Honestly, that would be a hell of a run. Yes. (laughs) I would love to see that, yeah. Oh my god, I'm sorry. That just spoke into my head. And it just said, yeah, not like bachelorette party the way that we think of it today, but of like, yeah, I have to get you ready for your wedding. And obviously he lives in that town over there. You need to go be with him. He's not coming to you or vice versa. Wait a second. I just realized this is literally the opening of FF15. Oh my god. (laughs) Oh my god. Yeah, no, Final Fantasy XV is a Blue Dragon Ryutama story. You're absolutely right. It just veers hard Black Dragon halfway through, but... And and there's our hot take for the day. Yeah. Yeah, friendship, love, family. It's all about you and your bros going to his fiance to meet her and get married and, like, have a wonderful life together. And then everyone dies. Yeah, there's the not-feel-good part. Yeah, I could absolutely run that story with this. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's it. Blue Dragon stories are Final Fantasy XV. I like it. Okay, the third one. (laughs) Red Dragon stories focus on competition, adventure, war, monster hunting, and dungeon exploring. This one's interesting to me. Yeah, it's also got stuff like growth and worthy rivals as some of those keywords. So it really makes me think of very shonen anime, like, we're going to test our strength. Come, grow strong with us, yes. Okay, it's funny, though, because I immediately, if I wanted to run a shonen story, I feel like I would use Big Eye, Small Mouth, or literally any of the other anime-styled games. This one, I don't know, it feels too... The combat system, as good as it is, as fun as it is, it doesn't feel robust enough, if that makes any sense. It would definitely be one of those times when, as we have discussed previously on the podcast, you would really want to pick the system for the story that you're running. If you want a high, high combat Sailor Moon style, this probably would not be the right thing. But if you wanted to do a take on Monster Hunter, Oh, okay, okay. Or like Hunter x Hunter, where it's almost still that same pseudo coming of age, but it's not really about like beating the bad guy necessarily in the same way, except session to session, obviously, there's a bad guy we need to take care of them. Yeah, if Um, I was going to run this, I would say that the monster would be like a force of nature. Ooh, okay. Sure, you could slay it, you can fight it, you can do these things. But it's framed as such where this is a monster to be slain because it is monstrous, not necessarily because it's 
evil or something like that. See, I was seeing more of like a 1917, the movie, about the guy who had to get a message to basically the other side of World War One and survive so that his forces didn't die in an ambush. And at its core, it's about him and his brother, but at its actual story plot-wise is just him surviving, getting to this battlefield across a nation. And that sort of journey... But I do really like the idea of, like, we're going to go off and slay, maybe not, like, maybe big old air quotes on that. Ooh, oh, man, it just came to me. Never-ending story. Yeah. Never-ending story. We can't actually kill the nothing, but we're gonna try. Yes, that's how I would, that's how I would do my framing on a Red Dragon story. Something okay. like that, where you're up against impossible odds, and then you're on a hero's journey to do your best, because who else is going to try, right? Right. And along the way, we lose our horse, and it's heartbreaking, and we could definitely not do that in a green dragon story of a, or a blue dragon story, because yeah. the fundamental piece of this is you're not actually going to kill the nothing. You're not actually going to kill the force of nature, but you're going to try because it's the right thing to do. Big, big air quotes on right thing or whatever. I it, like that it is totally consistent and rewarded by the plot if you attempt to kill me. Yeah. yeah, I could see Shadow of the Colossus is a red dragon story. Oh, okay. So that actually brings us to our fourth one, black dragon yeah. stories. They focus on suspense, conspiracy, betrayal, disorder, and tragedy. And I actually was already about to mention... I think Shadow of the Colossus is a black dragon story. It it toes the line on that, doesn't it? Because of yes, that, because it is monster hunting, but yeah. like it's not. It has such a melancholy aftertaste that even while you're hunting them, like you know it's wrong, but you have to. Yeah, and the game won't let you not. <laughs> there is nothing else to do. As the game is presented. Yes, I think that it leans more towards a Black Dragon story than a Red Dragon story. If the characters' motivations were, say, a little less selfless, a little different, then yeah, I could see it being a Red Dragon story. If it was about saving the town, maybe it would be a Red Dragon story. But since it's about bringing back your girlfriend, sister, something, then it feels Black Dragon-ish. Like you're doing this terrible, terrible thing only to benefit them. And then in the end, you kill people. Like, <laughs> Hey there, besties. This is Ariane Post. I'll try not to do these often, but since I'm doing the editing, I could just slip these in. I really did not explain myself well here. What I was trying to say with these dragon color variations is that they are lenses you can look at a story through. If you remove the war and conspiracy from Full Metal Alchemist and made it about someone traveling and learning about the world, it could be a green dragon story. If you look at the Shadow of the Colossus and frame the story to where you're fighting gigantic, dangerous beasts to protect others from harm, it can become a red dragon story. My final point is that most stories you're familiar with have elements of all these dragon varieties and can be easily tweaked to accommodate them. Another point on the This is Awesome for New GM scoreboard. If you're stuck on what to run, just take your favorite piece of media, file off the VIN numbers, and apply one of these lenses. Okay, back to the show. The artifacts and the benedictions, the reusion powers in this one yes. are really, really descriptive for me. Dagger. Once per journey, an NPC can die. No role required. Artifact determines in the setting that all the player characters have a dark past. There's something on here that's like, 
If a PC acts with hatred or for the purpose of revenge, they gain a bonus for their actions for the rest of the session. Um, yeah. yeah. See, this is giving me Full Metal Alchemist vibes. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you I know, it's see, funny. This I is actually it. giving me a lot of vibes. Yeah, the anime comparison is especially apt given the roots of this game. Right. Very much anime. Each one of these could absolutely be turned to a different sub-genre of anime and really tell that story very, very well. I really wanted to touch on those because I thought that would be an interest if you, dear listener, were to pick up Yuriyotama. That's some aspects of what this game can do, what sort of stories it can tell, and what it is so damn good at is telling that sort of tale. Even if it is a Shadow of the Colossus, even if it is a Black Dragon, it is still feel-good in the moment. We are still slaying these beasts, getting closer to our goal. It just happens to be that everyone knows the end of the goal is we all die. And that's really the key there is the melancholy but hopeful, the feel-good but dangerous. That's what really sunk me on this system. That story that I had mentioned earlier, it really captured my imagination in a way that I haven't felt before, and that I can tell some good stories with this. Absolutely. 1,000%. All right. Well, I think that's the time that we have this week. So here's the real question, ladies, gentlemen, and everything in betweens is, what's next week about? Oh, normally something pops up. I know. We were so focused on Ryutama, we didn't really catch something there. Okay, I have an idea. Because of the element of this one about a really cool different game that one of us had never heard of, I'm thinking we go over weirdest TTT, blah, 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 the weirdest tabletop role-playing game systems we have ever found. I like that. Let's see. Okay, cool. Going weird next week. Lady Orcs and Gentle Elves, that's all the time that we have. Aria, curious out! Uh, we are going out! You know, whatever, uh, whatever outro stuff, we should, we should start playing that. Yeah, things in junk. Junk and stuff. I'm trying to pull something up right now. I really hope that you wombat this. Um, <laughs> we'll see, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see if I cut this. But now we'll just stall for time. Yes, we'll just stall for time. Had the. Oh, that's me coming home. We're going to wombat this. Wombat, wombat, wombat. Until the door closes, wombat. Wombat. Honey, did you close the door? Okay, she closed the door. I I didn't hear the door close. Okay, she keep it in some of that because it's dumb as hell. Okay. I'll figure out how to slice it. It'll be great. Yeah, fabulous. Or just throw it in at the end as a blooper.